reopen right now. Get those brokers back in here. Turn those machines back on. Turn those machines back on. I kick flows for you. Kick down doors for you. Even left all my anecdotal lores for you. Central banks still raising rates. Picture that with a Kodak, Instamatic. Investors don't get down like that. Laying our game down quite flat. Disconnecting like Nymex. Out of time like Timex. Getting funky with the flex. Funk master with the Pyrex on the stove. Where's Biggie? Where's Hove with the checks? Throwing diamonds in the sky. Not ready to die. Bulls gotta run. Hawks gotta fly. Animal spirits taking over. All we wanna do is buy. But the rally started slipping. Traders started tripping. Worries and misgivings like Eastwood unforgiving. Reliving the past. Watching those gains falling faster than you Sane Bolton down the lane. Is this the end of the beginning or the beginning of the end? A reversion to the mean or a break in the trend? Do we fight the Fed or is the Fed our friend? So many questions, so many to address. It's time to punch our tickets on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard and roll down the window because the bears are passing gas. The bull market hit a stop sign last week as investors pulled back from their buying spree as central banks around the world ratcheted up their rate hiking plans to stamp out inflation once and for all. The Bank of England led the party by raising rates half a percent, more than what was expected, and was followed by the central banks of Switzerland, Norway, and Turkey. Fed Chair Powell was on Capitol Hill testifying to Congress about why the U.S. central bank will likely raise rates a couple more times before before the end of the year. Not unexpected, but not necessarily what bulls want to hear these days, given the recent momentum and breadth across the equity markets. The S&P 500 fell 1.4% last week, ending five straight weeks of gains. Technical analysts will say it hit a resistance level as the index topped 4,400 for the first time since April of last year and was due for a pullback. Okay, if you say so, you can also say there was more sellers than buyers. The Dow fell 1.7%, ending a three-week run, and the NASDAQ, which has been the torchbearer for this rally since October, fell 1.4%, its first down week in eight. Even though stocks sold off last week, the sell-off was kind of orderly. The VIX, or volatility index, hit a multi-year low last Thursday in the midst of all the selling, dropping under 13 for the first time since January of 2020. The VIX measures the volume of options trading in the S&P 500, which is a pretty good indicator of traders' level of pessimism about the short-term direction of the market. What's weird this time around is that the VIX might be low, but options activity is at a multi-year high. And that leads us straight into our big three, for the week. Number one, according to our pal Callie Cox at eToro, as of Friday, 46 million options contracts linked to U.S. equity indexes, individual stocks, and exchange-traded funds have traded hands every trading session on average this month. That's putting June on pace to set a record for options activity. Forget about sell in May and go away. Callie says a lot of the options demand has centered on call options, bets that a stock index or ETF will trade higher in the future. Trading volume in these contracts has averaged $26 million a day so far, putting June on track to be the heaviest month of call buying since November of 2021. On the other hand, short sellers have become very busy at the same time. According to S3 Partners, which tracks short selling activity, total short interest exceeded $1 trillion as of Friday. They've been betting big against more gains in the stock market, especially against the biggest stocks in the market. The top five shorted stocks, according to S3, Tesla, Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA, and Amazon. Shorting those stocks has been a bad bet this year, though, and it has cost those short sellers over $100 billion so far this year. Number two, 
Was last week's pullback a sign of more pain ahead? Possibly, but long-term investors should remember that bull markets rarely run in a straight line higher, and they kind of don't feel like bull markets in their early days. Since 1950, the S&P 500 has rallied an average of 43% in the first year of a bull market. But in seven of those, according to eToro's Cox, the market has pulled back 5% or more in that first year. Sound familiar? In just the past eight months since this bull started running, we've experienced three drops of 5% or more. To be sure, this bull market will be different from the last one and many others from the past. It's happening amid high inflation and high interest rates, and there are plenty of other alternatives for investors looking for comfortable gains. And number three, the quiet bull in the stock market might get stirred by what is happening in the corporate bond market. According to Moody's, there have already been 41 corporate bond defaults in the U.S. and one in Canada so far this year. That's more than double the amount from last year. And corporate bankruptcies are also on the rise. According to S&P Global Market Intelligence, there have been more than 324 corporate bankruptcy filings so far this year, and we're not even at the halfway mark. In 2022, for comparison, there were 374 total. You can blame rising interest rates for a lot of those, since a lot of those corporate bond yields are tied to the Fed funds rate, which went from around 0% to a little over 5% in just over a year. If companies can't service their debt payments or refinance at those higher rates, they default, leaving their bondholders empty-handed. The silver lining in this, if there is one, is that corporate defaults are usually a lagging indicator of distress. It's the last thing a company does after trying everything from lowering expenses, layoffs, and balance sheet CPR. You remember Fed Chair Powell saying last week that the Fed paused its rate hikes so it could see how much damage the previous hikes had done to the economy? Well, these corporate defaults and bankruptcies are the roadkill lying on the highway and something we should keep an eye on ahead of the Fed's next meeting in about 29 days. Let's get set up for the week ahead, the last trading week of the month, the quarter, and the first half of the year. We can check the scoreboard now, it's okay, and here are the scores on the doors from the good people at Bank of America Global Research. Crypto is up 52%, that includes Bitcoin and Ethereum and the larger coins. Stocks are up around 13%, gold 5.9%, high yield bonds 5.2%, investment grade bonds 3.8%, cash 2.1%, government bonds a little over 1%, the US dollar down almost 1.5%. You wonder why stocks are rallying? Commodities down 4.1% and oil down 9.6% year to date. The S&P up 13% so far this year will tell us something. Historically, when the S&P 500 is up at least 10% year to date at the end of June, the index ends the year higher 82% of the time, gaining about 7.7% on average, according to our pal Ryan Dietrich at the Carson Group. That's not a guarantee it's going to happen this year by any means, but just keep that in your back pocket when you are allocating. We'll also receive more updates on the housing market this week with April home prices and May new home sales. Housing prices in the U.S. fell more than 3% from the same time last year, with the median existing home price clocking in at around $396,000 last month. That's the largest year-over-year -year price reduction since December of 2011. Sales of existing homes, which include single-family homes, townhouses, condominiums, and co-ops, fell 20.4% from a year ago. The recession is in the housing market, folks. On Friday, the Bureau of Economic analysis will release the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index. That's the Fed's preferred inflation gauge. We'll also get consumer sentiment readings from the Conference Board and the University of Michigan, and the final estimate for first quarter gross domestic product. And we'll get fresh reads on inflation and unemployment from the Eurozone this week. They are no strangers to high inflation over there either, but tourism is in full swing across the continent. 
And keep an eye on the banking sector this week. The results of the Fed's annual stress test will be revealed. And after what went down last spring with Silicon Valley Bank, Signature, and First Republic, brace for lower marks and calls for stricter rules. The earnings calendar also picks up again with widely held stocks, including Carnival Cruise Lines, Walgreens, Micron Technology, General Mills, and Nike, all reporting results, among others. Just do it. Deep in the hills of eastern Pennsylvania sits the Vanguard Group, one of the largest and most influential investment managers on the planet with over $7.7 trillion in assets under management. Founded by the legendary John Bogle in 1975, Vanguard has grown from being a vanilla ice cream index mutual fund shop to a global investment powerhouse, offering everything from mutual funds to ETFs to stocks, options, bonds, and everything in between. With so much of our money under its stewardship, when Vanguard talks, we need to listen, especially when it comes to its forecast for future returns and how individual investors should adjust their portfolios for the new, new normal. Roger Aliago Diaz is the chief economist of the Americas and the global head of portfolio construction for the Vanguard Group, so he knows all about this, and he is our very special guest this week on the Investopedia Express. Welcome. Wow, good to be here. Good to have you here. You're an economist, first and foremost. So what are the most profound changes we've seen to the global economy in the past three years? Some of them are super obvious to us, but what are the most profound that are going to be with us for a while? Yes, definitely. Um, of course, inflation is in everybody's minds right now, and that's a direct result of the dislocation of COVID, right? So as we know, COVID created massive dislocations around the globe in terms of global supply chains. It also required massive policy stimulus and extreme policy measures from governments around the world to restart the economy after COVID. And that resulted in basically what we see today. This spike in inflation went much higher than anybody thought, even the Fed. And of course, central banks trying to contain really to put the genie back in the, in the bottle really with, with rate hikes and we're still going. So that has defined the investment landscape for the last couple of years for sure. Yeah. And we're going to feel that going forward. So this is kind of the new, new normal. High rates, highish inflation. How long does Vanguard think this is going to last? Since the very beginning, actually, since last year, we've been saying that controlling inflation is not going to be a quick process. It's true, inflation is heading in the right direction, but very gradually, very, very slowly. It will take at least to the end of 2024 or so for inflation to get back to, to central banks' targets, which is about 2% inflation. What about 4 to 5% these days on average, depending which indicator you look at? So it's, it's really a gradual process, right? Even when we get there, the one thing that may not change is the interest rates side. So inflation may go back to normal. Interest rates may not go back to the pre-COVID levels of, of zero rates. So that may be more of a permanent feature of the investment landscape. Yeah, and that changes a lot of things because a lot of us and a lot of investors that have come into the market in the last 20 years, all they really know is low rates. All they really know is an easing Fed, is quantitative easing for that matter. We're not having that at all right now, as everybody knows. So this different dynamic kind of changes the outlook and the expectations for what we should expect as market participants. So Vanguard, as I said, a little bit more muted than folks. What are the expectations for U.S. equity market returns for the next decade or so? Yes. Um, so we're, as you say, we're more muted on the, on the equity side. And we think that's directly linked to this environment of higher interest rates. Part of what drove equity markets high for so many years was basically that that permanent stimulus from the monetary side, these low rates, and, and as, as rates reset higher, really the discount rate, right, the interest rate that one uses to evaluate, to asset valuation of stocks have, have increased, and that has depressed basically equity values, right? Valuations are still a little bit high 
to us, even after the whole correction we have seen, we're about 10 to 12% overvalued relative to our own evaluation metrics. Because of that, particularly in the US compared to international, we are a little more muted. We expect about 5% return over the next 10 years on average. Five, and that's going down from about an eight to 10% on average, going back many, many years. So exactly. a much different environment. So if you're looking if you're looking for yield as an investor, if you're looking for ways to grow your money beyond that, because 4% is nice in the bank, but it's getting kind of boring. And you can tell investors have kind of been shifting back towards equities. What are the recommendations from Vanguard in terms of how to reset your portfolio? Let's talk about me. I'm in my uh, low 50s. How should I be thinking about that? Yes. Well, the good news here, I mean, among all the volatility we have experienced is that there are a few areas that are brighter spots in the markets. One is higher interest rates. So for the fixed income side of the portfolio, that's a good thing, right? Second is that portfolio diversification is back. After a year in which basically stocks and bonds experience correlated losses, we're back to a level in which, especially if inflation goes back to normal, we may see a little bit more diversification. So that's to say that one can actually look for areas of higher return without overdoing it, maintaining balance and diversification. For example, international equity uh, looks a little bit more attractive than, than US equity. Fixed income looks more attractive than equities in general. I will watch out for credit and high yield sectors, which seem a little bit priced to perfection right now. Right. I, I, I was reading Tim Buckley, your CEO, talking about the 60-40, the 60-40 portfolio, 60 equities, 40% bonds, which really broke last year for the first time in a very long time. And that really shook a lot of people. It's working again right now. And he's talking about uh, expectations from around 6 to 7% on an annual basis going out for the next decade. I think a lot of investors might sign up for that if they could see 6 to 7% consistently. I think that sounds pretty good. Why is that uh, going to be more attractive than straight equities? It's interesting, the 60-40, actually, even if you look back to the last 10 years, it also produced 6%, even counting the almost double-digit losses of last year, right? Of course, in the previous three years, the 60-40 created almost 50% cumulative returns. So that's kind of the feature of, of the 60-40. Like, there are years that are really bad, like, like last year was historically bad, but other years are, are ex uh, extremely high. As we move forward, we see international equity valuations of setting the the weakness on, on the U.S. equity side. As I said before, we see uh, fixed income also pulling its weight for the first time in many years. Bonds, bonds are back, right? So a 4% Barclays Ag at about 7% global stocks, portfolio of 60, 40 global stocks and U.S. stocks. And that gives you an average of about 5 to 6% for the next 10 years. But that level of risk, as you say, is a very attractive proposition compared to what is out there. Yeah, boring is back, but it's kind of beautiful and people are into it. But we all know that investors, especially individ individual investors, have an appetite for outperformance. And Vanguard's clients in particular, they're a little bit more, I don't know, reasonable, I should say, and they behave a little bit more reasonably than some other brokers because you have that legacy of that index fund investing. And people know that it's based on diversification and the long term. What have you noticed among your clients, though, in the last couple of years, and especially the last year, in terms of behavior, the way they're treating their portfolios, any big moves either way, or are they staying the course, as Jack Bogle liked to say? Yes, we like them to stay the course, as I say, but you know, obviously investors are asking about cash, right? So cash is, is, is a little bit the elephant in the room, right? Like we have the Fed almost at 5% with overnight rates, no, no risk, right? And the question is whether cash or those basically very short-term investments are strategic role in a long-term portfolio. 
The problem is that, of course, over time, other assets can do better. If, if you had to generate growth for retirement goals or for college saving, you need to go get out uh, a little bit out of the risk curve, go out to search that for that 6-7% that the 60-40 gives you. But definitely, we have seen a little bit of a, of a shift from reaching out for yield from the years in which yields were at zero to, okay, now I can get a little bit more return with less risk, right? So there is a little bit of that type of rebalancing going on. Let's go around the world a little bit, since you do cover the Americas as well. I spent a lot of time in South America. You're from Argentina. My wife's from Uruguay. I was down there last year. Inflation, sky high down there. It's a completely different way of life. You almost can't trust what the currency is going to be valued at from one day, from really one hour to the next there. But you've seen a lot of outperformance from some of the countries on an index level there. What is it that investors see that you can't see on the ground when you're down there? Well, there, there is a lot about what the market priced in and all the bad news were really pricing very early. Very interestingly, for the first time, I would say many years, central banks in the region acted preemptively, almost ahead of the Fed, something that typically doesn't happen. Usually central emerging market, central banks kind of follow the Fed. This time around, they were very aggressive very early on. And that kind of paid off a little bit in terms of giving a relief rally for, for the emerging markets. Some of them still face many difficulties, right? And especially in particular the case of Argentina, there are uh, unique cases there of, of high inflation. Right. So we do have some outperformance from international markets. You look in Europe where there was a technical recession in the first part of this year. Still, you have the DAX kind of near you know, multi-year, if not all-time highs. You have other markets in Europe doing very well. As At the same time, the economy looks like it's not in great shape and not going to get much better anytime soon. So again, how long do you expect the outperformance of some international markets relative to the U.S.? Well, there are basically three drivers for, for international outperformance from the point of view of a U.S. investor, right? And one of them is the relative valuations. For as long as valuations in Europe and in our regions stay uh, subdued, that gives you a little bit of a good entry for equity markets relative to U.S. The second aspect that I think uh, helps international equities is the growth and value composition of the market compared to U.S. As we know, in an environment of high interest rates, growth stocks are more challenged, although you wouldn't say so from this year, performance of the growth stocks. But I think in, as interest rates are going to stay high for many years, we may actually see that relatively more beneficial to value stocks and international markets tend to be more value-oriented, right? So second composition. And the third one is the dollar. The US dollar has to weaken a little bit from this point. It's less of a prediction, more of a macro-fundamental reasoning here in terms of where the US is in terms of trade deficits and, and current account deficits. So a weakening dollar trend would actually benefit also US investors invested uh, overseas. What's the story that no one's really talking about that needs more attention when you look at the global economy right now and potential risks or opportunities out there? What's not getting enough attention in your point of view? I think one big risk here is that this inflation and rate hiking cycle is not ending as much as we all think. So it's not our baseline view. We think that the Fed is probably near the top of the rate hiking cycle or, or, or very close to. But the surprise could be that the labor market strength continues, that we are at year end, that employment is still below 2%, wage inflation is still running hot, and the Fed decides that actually it needs to go to something like 6%. So that's something that probably markets are not fully pricing now, and that will be a big surprise. Uh, this is why at Vanguard, we usually work with uh, scenarios, and we have kind of attached probabilities. We have our baseline in, in the recession scenario for this year, 
but that tail risk is significant at this point. Yeah, that would throw some cold water on a pretty strong rally so far in the first six months of this year. What else has changed in terms of globalization? We know there's a deglobalization movement going on. We know there are obvious tensions between China and the US. We obviously know Russia is still into its long invasion of the Ukraine, and that's unsettling. But in terms of trade, globalization, and where that stands and where it's going, what's your thoughts? Now, definitely there is a little bit of change of times there in terms of globalization has been such a tailwind to economic growth in the U.S. and in globally for many years. And this basically deglobalization trend tends to basically mute some of the benefits, like basically the availability of, of low cost of, of goods. And as a result, we may see a little bit the impact through cost pressures, price pressures, and also a lower growth, right? If you add that to the militarization in Europe, we have seen all the military bases going up across the world. So now we're thinking also what the impact of that could be on, on fiscal deficits as governments start to think to reshore industries, build infrastructure, invest more in, in, in defense budgets. So what all that means for the long-term budget. So it's, it's less of a short-term question, but certainly it's a question about the sustainability and, and where the debt is going over the, over the next few years. That and also there's a lot of drumbeat around the dollar and you know potentially not being used as one of the global standards. What's Vanguard's take on that? I mean, I know a lot of people have been talking about it, but I don't think a lot of people realize just how many transactions happen in dollar-denominated currencies. So everything from the investing world to trade and the Forex market, What's Vanguard's take on, on the dollar and how long it will stay strong? Yeah, as you say, the dollar is basically the, the bedrock of global finance, is the world reserve currency. At some point in the apex of globalization, we thought maybe other currencies will rise to the status of the dollar, right? And rising to the status of the dollar for the yuan, for example, or the euro, would mean to have basically open capital markets, full convertibility, the, the backing of, of the, the strength of institutions and credibility of the of the central banks. And we saw all those drivers that needed to be there disappearing one by one, right? China kind of going back, closing in, no rebalancing. And Europe, basically through the European debt crisis, we saw wh where the weak spot for, for them was, right? So that leaves the dollar as really the only currency that for the time being can actually fund the, the global finance and, and trade. And because of that, even though some fundamentals will tell you, okay, in terms of debt and the sustainability would be things that would be uh, some negatives to the dollar, but at the same time, there are not many other options out there. And in that sense, we, we think that at least for the next few years, uh, the dollar will continue serving as the world reserve currency. Yeah, I don't think it's something we need to plan for right away, but it is a trend to keep an eye on. All right, let's go out on these on these ones. We've been talking a lot about retirement here at Investopedia. Everyone's been talking about it. It's what our industry is kind of built on. But there, I feel like there's been a new defining of that for a mm. lot of people, especially over the past few years. So I'm curious, you're an economist, but you're also into portfolio construction and creating these products for those of us who are seeking those golden years yeah. down the road. What does retirement mean to you? What does it mean to Vanguard these days? Yeah, great question. Because to me, retirement means uh, financial independence. Yeah, the ability to devote time to one's passions and interests and, and basically switch from work, right? I think it's less about the age. It's more about reaching a certain level of assets that can basically secure the financial independence. And we measure the success of retirement in terms of replacement ratios, in terms of basically how much of the standard of living, of the living standards that one can actually uh, sustain to retirement 
It's a very difficult proposition because in addition to living standards, also wants to basically plan for contingency risks. There are many in retirement, as we know, right? From health risk to long-term care risk to even longevity risk. So basically how we create a financial plan that can actually secure those levels of assets. I would say the other thing about retirement is really about commitment to the investment plan because one thing we have learned doing many analysis in the portfolios is that it's more important to stick to the plan than how good the plan is itself. So we can optimize and try to get the best financial plan ever, but ultimately, if we don't account for certain behavioral aspects that will make you abandon the plan midway, would actually everything would fail, right? So basically, commitment is, is, is a key part. Staying the course, as you say, out there in Malvern. All right, let's go out on this. Very curious as to your favorite investing term. You know we're a site built on our terms mm. and our dictionary. You're an economist. You're also creating investment products for us. What's your favorite investing term and why? Okay, I think I will go with trade-offs in both from economics and portfolio construction. You cannot have return without having more risk, right? You cannot have more wealth for retirement without sacrificing like to save more and spend less during working life years and so on, right? So I think having the mindset of a trade-off is a good starting point in investing, especially when we hear uh, sometimes, okay, the solution to portfolio investing is to invest in this in this asset that will you, give you higher return. I always have the question, okay, but what's the trade-off? Really, what's the other side of the of the coin here. Yeah, that's that's the question. And we always have to make choices. Great term. We love that. Roger Ayago Diaz, the chief economist of the Americas and the global head of portfolio construction for the Vanguard Group. Thanks so much for joining us on the Express. We appreciate it. Good to hear. Thank you. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term, discounted cash flow, comes to us from Faris, who hit us up on the gram. We like that term because discounted cash flow is one of those fundamental metrics that really tells you the health of the business and how much risk it can take. According to our favorite website, discounted cash flow, or DCF as it's called in the game, refers to a valuation method that estimates the value of an investment using its expected future cash flows. Discounted cash flow analysis attempts to determine the value of an investment today based on projections of how much money that investment will generate in the future. Discounted cash flow is also useful if you're considering whether to buy a company or buy securities, and it's also pretty useful for business owners and managers in making capital budgeting or operating expenditures decisions. Companies typically use the weighted average cost of capital for the discount rate because it accounts for the rate of return expected by shareholders. Great suggestion, Ferris. We're going to be sending you a pair of our finest software to keep you walking smart all summer long. DM us your mailing address. We're going to let the great Tom Hanks take us out this week. The multiple Academy Award-winning actor, humanitarian, and seemingly one of the most decent famous people on the planet today recently gave the commencement address at Harvard University. Hanks, as only Hanks can, delivered a uniquely human and sensible speech, encouraging graduates to be the people who stand up for everybody's rights all the time, the people who step forward to do what's right because it's the right thing to do. Here's a quick clip from that speech, which we will link to in the show notes. It's worth watching. In the never-ending battle you have all officially joined as of today, the difference is in how truly you believe and in how vociferously you promote and how tightly you hold to the truth that is self-evident, that of course we are all created equally yet differently, and of course 
We are all in this together. The one and only Tom Hanks. Special thanks to Roger Aliaga Diaz of Vanguard for joining The Express this week. It's always good to get the view from Malvern, Pennsylvania every once in a while. And special thanks to all of you for riding The Express with us each and every week. Let's close out the first half of the year strong. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.